1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Benjamin Hale. Associate Professor of Environmental Studies and Philosophy at the University of Colorado at Boulder. His new book, The Wild and the Wicked on Nature and Human Nature, is just out from the MIT Press. Many environmentalists approach the problem of motivating environmentally friendly behavior from the perspective that nature is good and that we ought to act so as to maximize the good environmental consequences of our actions and minimize the bad ones. An environmental activist turned academic philosopher, Hale argues against this dominant consequentialist approach towards environmentalism in favor of a Kantian view. We ought to act in environmentally friendly ways because it is the right thing to do. Hale argues that nature is not good, it is often bad, but that the Kantian position shows why we should have good reason to act to preserve nature, whether or not it is good. On his view, environmentally friendly action is motivated by reflecting on our reasons for acting, guided by a concern that our actions be acceptable to a wide range of parties. In this accessible discussion intended for a wide audience, Hale provides a fresh philosophical grounding for thinking about human action and inaction, regarding the environment. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Benjamin Hale. Are you there?
0: I'm here. Thanks Hi. for having me.
1: Yeah, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our discussion, The Wild and the Wicked on Nature and Human Nature, which um, is a very interesting, I mean, interestingly written um, and interestingly argued, uh, defense of a basically a Kantian environmentalism, you know, where you emphasize, you know, we should act in certain ways that are environmentally friendly, uh, because essentially that's the reasonable thing to do. We should, we should leverage our human reasoning resources in order to promote, uh, activities that respect, or at least, um, maybe that's not the right word, but, um, promote, the health of the planet and the environment. Um, Now, you yourself also discuss it in the beginning, uh, at least in the introduction to the book, um, that you have uh, have a history of uh, being an environmental activist um, Mm -hmm. as well as a philosopher. So uh, before we get into the book itself, maybe you can tell us a bit about your background um, and how you came to philosophy and how you came to uh, write the book.
0: I will definitely do that. Uh, I do want to say, though, thank you for the introduction. I think you did a nice job of summarizing the book. And and you're correct that it's uh, primarily a Kantian justification for environmentalism, which is somewhat unusual within the environmental literature. Um, So hopefully I can clarify why why I sort of took that path um, and um, my justifications or reasons for writing the book in the first place. But I guess I should start just by sort of like giving a a rough history of my uh, intellectual uh, maturation, if you will, and, and, and how I came came to um, become uh, not just a Kantian environmentalist, but um, but but ultimately an environmentalist and an environmental philosopher. I I mean, sort of long story short, I mean, I think like many people who enter the philosophy uh, literature, I wasn't initially um, drawn to philosophy. I didn't know anything about it. I went to the college and I, I had all sorts of other kinds of interests. I was interested in chemistry and art and, um, and, um, and Russian. And so during my college time, I, I studied a lot of Russian and I studied a lot of art um, and I moved to Russia during my sophomore year of college, uh, and spent some time there just as the Soviet Union was falling apart. Um, and I also, while there, uh, started reading uh, a lot of philosophy, and I'd taken a few classes in college, and I really was drawn to philosophy at that point, and particularly political theory and ethical theory. I spent uh, the remainder of my two years in college, sort of studying philosophy and continuing with a little bit of the art in the Russian. Um, uh, so much so that by the end of my four years, I I applied for a fellowship to study art in Russia, um, uh, all the while thinking that I would sort of take a, a more theoretical, um, look at the sort of, uh, the, the life of the, the Soviet artists or the former Soviet artists in the face of the fall of the Soviet union. So I got this fellowship, um, to study in Russia and I, I moved there in 1994, just after graduating from college, uh, and, uh, and lived there sort of alone in the dark in the winter where it was very cold. And, um, and I did a lot of thinking and a lot of reading. I read a lot of fiction and I read a lot of uh, nonfiction, a lot of philosophy. Um, but I also was paying attention to the political scene there. And what I, what I witnessed or what I was sort of witnessed through watching the news was, you know, sort of the rise of the the oligarchs. Um, and the sort of the rampant, the wholesale uh, devastation of the Russian wilderness, you know, in the name of basically building up the country after the fall of the Soviet Union. I, I, I it sort of dawned on me at this point, and this maybe is late for, for a lot of people, but for me, it was a, it was a revelation that um, so many of our wars and so much political strife is rooted in essentially a struggle for resources. And I don't know, something during that year kind of clicked um, where, where I, I recognize. That suddenly, resources are and envir- natural resources are environmental objects or things in the environment. And so, during that time, I made a decision to um, pursue a kind of get you know, an unconventional path. I knew that I wanted to get a degree in philosophy. I was um, I was compelled to do that, but also a little bit afraid of moving into philosophy, knowing the job market even then was pretty terrible. Um, And so I decided I would get a degree in environmental policy and natural resources policy. And I did that first, which I think was a very smart move for me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I moved to Arizona. I got a master's degree, uh, an MPA, master's in public administration and natural resources policy at the University of Arizona um, and I learned a lot about how policies made, what kinds of, um, techniques and methods are used to justify policies. Um, I learned a lot of environmental economics, um, and, uh, and that, uh, I think probably more than a lot of the philosophy that I was later to read, uh, influenced my thinking about environmental, uh, issues. Uh, also, at that time, though, while I was in Arizona, I kind of hooked up with a bunch of environmental activists and, and you know, fairly radical activists. I hooked up with some folks in the Southwest Center for Biological Diversity, which is a, a fairly aggressive uh, environmental conservation organization that orients a lot of its work around trying to conserve species by um, essentially exploiting the uh, Endangered Species Act um, and, 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 and holding companies and uh, industry to account um, for laws that are already on the books. And they are very, very successful in doing this. I saw what they were doing i thought this was phenomenal and i started attending protests and attending um attending uh, forest service hearings um and eventually went to work the the natural resources division of the library of congress uh and went to a couple of markup hearings and what i witnessed during that time was not only a kind of battle between environmentalists and non-environ- non-environmentalists or anti-environmentalists but also a kind of uh, a failure of, of discourse, a failure of these political actors to um, really take into consideration the the arguments of people who were genuinely concerned about the plight of, um, you know, the frigidaeus pygmy or the or the or the jaguar or whatever um, whatever species was under question. <laughs> so so that motivated me. Um, and then I went off to get a degree in philosophy, and and and, and basically put a lot of that, uh, put a lot of that more practical background, um, sort of on the shelf for a few years and then studied, studied philosophy. Um, I can say more about the the development there and how it started to merge later too. Um, but that was really formative for me because I continued with activism throughout graduate school and philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and, uh, in so doing also started to guide a lot of my philosophical questioning toward, um, is sort of away from more conventional or traditional philosophical questions and more towards um, sort of practical or applied policy mechanisms um, that I thought were sort of under-explored by philosophers.
1: Okay. So yeah. um, so one of the things that you, uh, y- you start out the book, um, putting forward a view that I take to be the dominant view, let's say, among environmentalists, mm-hmm that you have that part of what motivates us to act um in environment environmentally friendly ways is the idea that nature is good that nature has value either intrinsic or en- extrinsic and there's this connection between treating you know between action of a certain <laughs> sort um and the idea that we should do it because uh, it's because nature itself has some sort of, of value. Right. And um, one of the criticisms, or the on the other side, I mean, the, the people who are, uh, I don't know if you want to call them anti-environmentalists, but those who will make fun of the environmental movement uh, in terms of, Tree huggers, or people who (laughs) embrace the pygmy owl in the Pacific Northwest at the cost of human jobs, uh, and and basically kind of make fun of the whole thing. Yeah, and 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 you make the point early on, before you kind of get to the more Kantian stuff Mm -hmm. later on, that you don't need to love nature to be motivated to protect it, and. Um, I just wanted you to start out maybe with basically the way you start out in the book, which is you know gently criticizing <laughs> this um, this dominant position in the environmentalist movement of trying to motivate action by showing that nature is good or that it has a certain value or something like that, because you want to distinguish, as you do numerous points, numerous ways throughout the book, between the good and the right, which is, a, of course, a standard basic distinction in ethical theory. But yep. you're applying that to this particular case of the what to do in environmental ethics as opposed to, say, some other area of moral theory. So could you explain a bit about that? view that you're opposing
0: sure Uh, that's a very funny way of putting it I, i like i mean i like what you say and i and i i appreciate that you said that i was being gentle because i will tell you that um you know, I've had a lot of readers of this book and some of them are they sort of bristle at the at my use of terminology like tree hugger, or tree hugging, dirt worshiper or something like that. Um, and they think that I'm not being gentle in any way. Right. That I'm just being this kind of crass, you know, anti environmentalist myself. So so some fingers are pointing at me for those uh, for those reasons. But but frankly, I mean, a lot of the time when I'm talking about tree huggers or hippies, I'm talking about myself. I mean, I'm talking about my friends and people that I love and, and, and care about um, uh, uh, dearly um, and I've worked closely with. Um, but, uh, but, but ultimately, um, I'm responding also to them and writing this book in a way for them because, um, because in my experience, um, the, the sort of the, the The foregone conclusion within environmentalism and maybe even with a lot of activist communities, even outside of environmentalism, is that if you can demonstrate the value of something, you know, in one way or another, um, then um, then the mere demonstration of that value will be enough to either motivate people to take action or at least to. Um, to demonstrate that some obligation follows from the demonstration of the value. So, you know, if you can show that nature is um, provides us with some kind of services, or that nature um, is, you know, intrinsically valuable in its own right, or um, that um, that it is sentimentally valuable for you, um, then presumably there is some kind of imperative that follows follows from that. And um, first of all, I mean, I think that's a questionable position. You know, I'm um, just just I think most philosophers will recognize that to be a fairly questionable uh, position. But uh, but second of all, I mean, I think that from the standpoint of, um, I guess one might say most people, uh, it's not the case that all experiences with nature, uh, you know, however construed, uh, play out such that. Um, there's a lot to love there. Um, there certainly is a lot to love about nature. And, you know, I live in Colorado. It's a beautiful state and there's a lot of really fantastic things that one can do here. Uh, but if we're not careful, right, um, nature can come back and harm us um, or or, uh, or, you know, destroy our house or I can um, we can we can um, get in trouble on a camping trip or what have you. Um, all this to say, basically, nature is it is wonderful and, and, and fantastic, but it's not it's not a clear question as to what the source of nature's value is and I just think um, as a sort of a putative Kantian um, That this orientation towards demonstrating the value uh, is not the right path for um, for Identifying maybe the source of our obligation. Um, so that's that's really what motivates this um, and also uh, I mean Uh, I mean, I'm motivated partly um, for for sort of my theoretical reasons, but I'm motivated also because I feel like a lot of people that I know, um, you know, a little bit outside of the environmental movement, and maybe I'll use my wife as an example here, um, don't have this kind of um, this natural, uh, what am I saying? uh they, they aren't naturally drawn to love camping let's mm-hmm. say or aren't naturally drawn to uh, wander wander into the wilderness right and just stare at the um stare at the squirrels in the trees for a long time we can do it but um, but most of us would or many people would rather sort of sit around and and uh, have a bowl of popcorn and and drink a beer or t- chat with one another there're a lot of there're a lot of things to love about that too so um that's that's kind of why i push it push okay. this direction yeah
1: well um so what but uh, you know from a Broader perspective, um, is it uh, you? Is is the tree hugging or the do gooder or um, those sorts of uh, dominant views I'll, I'll, uh, towards environmental activism? Uh, is it just that they just don't motivate us enough, or is mm. there something deeper, prob- more deeply problematic with their with their position?
0: Well, I think there's something very deeply problematic with the position, I think. Um, and we can get into that maybe later. But, um, I, I, you know, I think, uh, first of all, there are a lot of different audiences that have to be sort of addressed here. Um uh, but I think broadly speaking, the, the sort of the more consequentialist orientation of many environmentalists, which is kind of the, the presumed natural position, I think, of many environmentalists, but also many environmental ethicists. Uh-huh. Um, and and there are different beast, really, environmental ethicists and, and many of them, many environmental consequentialists are close friends of mine. So, um, you know, I, I address them in, in more professional context. But, um, but let me f- first just talk about sort of like what we call naive consequentialists within the environmental community. Um Sort of the naive consequentialist in the environmental community is um, is drawn to this idea that simply pointing out the devastating impacts of such and such a policy, or the devastating impacts of of removing um, something valuable in nature, um, will be enough to sort of motivate people to subscribe to a policy. I think this is um, this is not this is a sort of a rough road to to go down, um, in as much as it it's an empirical question in some cases as to whether or not that policy is going to bring about a bad state of affairs. So for instance, we find a lot of people who sort of are outside of the philosophy community who subscribe to this view that, um, the demonstration of something called ecosystem services. So this is the, which is the idea that basically ecosystems or, um, natural systems provide us with some kinds of benefits that otherwise go unaccounted for. Mm-hmm. Um, in in a a way that like in in the production of goods and services, let's say. And, um, these, these folks who are sort of advocates of this ecosystem, ecosystem services view think that, um, that this will naturally lead us to sort of give greater, um, attention to, or to promote, um, nature in a way that takes these kinds of ecosystem services into account. But the fact is, um, it's an empirical matter, uh, in part, um, as to whether or not these services are actually provided uh, by nature. And it turns out to be true also that in many cases, industry um, can provide those services maybe even better um, better than nature itself. For instance, Um, water purification is a great case. You know, we often talk about the drainage of water off of, off of hillsides and into wetland areas as a, as a sort of like a, a nature, an ecosystem service, um, in which the water is purified through the, through filtration uh, systems and whatnot. But, but as it happens, I mean, there are a lot of pathogens that develop through this process as well. And we're much better, um, at doing it, um, though it's a little bit more expensive, um, Uh, by building water, uh, sanitation facilities and and whatnot. So, Mm -hmm. so I, I think this is a dangerous line to go down for naive consequentialists. And we can talk about more sophisticated consequentialists, um, if you'd like, um, either now or later.
1: Okay. Well, um, I mean, the, the basic idea is, is pretty clear. You know, we can't, we can't know what the consequences are going to be. And, and furthermore, if we, if we humans, can take care of the problem even better than nature. Than than what's the problem, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so let me let me. Um...
0: I mean, one way. I, so I often yeah. put it with my students. I say, like, you know, there's a reason we're teaching class here in a building. And that's that, you know. As far as reliable climates are concerned, this building has a fairly reliable climate. That's not true about the quad outside, where we we would be sitting in the rain or sitting in a freezing cold or in the snow. You know, right. the, the right. simple way of putting the point.
1: Right. Well, I, th- I think a, a larger issue, and this this does this comes out kind of throughout the book, um, the idea of consequences. Uh, we, we don't really know what the consequences of of climate change will be or whether we can control it or anything like that. And that has been a, a hindrance to adopting some sort of a coherent climate change policy.
0: Yeah. So that's interesting. I haven't really thought about it like that. I don't know how to, how to pick that apart, but, um, but I do make a point similar to that. And I make this point fairly early in the book. Um, and that's that, you know, if we simply, I make it often with my class as well. Um, and for whatever reason, this seems to, 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 Open some eyes. Um, But but I sort of say, like, look, you know, um, if if it were determined by a bunch of scientists here at uh, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, which is just up the road uh, in Boulder, um, if it were determined by just a bunch of climate scientists that um, that that climatic change would be good for humanity, let's say. Um, or good for the planet overall, and we could sort of make that determination. Um, Is there any sense that any of us would have um, that we should do something to accelerate climate change, that we should like burn a bunch of tires and and oil in barrels? I mean, it doesn't seem to me that that follows from the mere observation that climate change would be good for us. And I try to be very clear that I don't think that climate change will be good for us (laughs) or for the planet. Um, but um, but uh, but the point I think stands counterfactually that that it's not clear that um, that we should do something to accelerate climate change if climate change is going to end up being good for us. And equally so, I'm not clear that the reason we ought to address climate change is only because um, it's going to bring about catastrophic consequences. Anyway.
1: Right. Okay. So um, about in the middle of the book, roughly, uh, mm-hmm. you build your case slowly. So I'm I'm not sort of picking on every single step. But yes. one of the main uh, issues that you, or points that you make, and it's it's important for your eventual Kantian position, is is where you distinguish, uh, you know, humans who have this capacity for, uh, for reasoning, or and for most importantly, I think, um, acting for reasons. Uh, from, or at least reasons that are in principle justifiable. So the, the emphasis there on sort of rational justification uh, versus, you know, acting for brute reasons or maybe for no reason, and uh, that distinguishes, you know, humans from from other animals. Um, and I just, I was just wondering if you could just say a bit more about that distinction. It's it's quite it's it's traditional there's mm-hmm. there's it's sanctioned by intuition in a lot of ways <laughs> right uh but um it also strikes me as a little bit like well you know we're finding out an awful lot about you know the animal kingdom, yeah, uh, the lines between you know what's exclusively human and what's not are kind of blurring at least in some ways, maybe. Maybe people – maybe we're not ready to kind of erase them, but uh, but in any case, um, it struck me as something that ought to be given more defense than you actually yeah. give it in, in the book. And that may just be because it there wasn't any necessity in the context of the book to do it. But since it does play an important role, yeah. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on this – this distinction or, or if you even need the distinction as such, rather than just, hey, we have this capacity to reason and right. that's good enough.
0: Okay. That's a, that's a really great question. And I, I like the way you put it. Um, but, but before I answer it, I want to, I want to sort of like preface by um, explaining a bit about the nature of the book and the audience for the book, because I, I think that's important here. Okay. Um, this is, uh, and, and I know you know this because I know you've read the book. Um, and the book is clearly, it's not written like a sort of a standard um, scholarly academic text. I wrote it um, intending to um, appeal to Uh, You know, readers of serious nonfiction. So these are the kind of Stephen Pinker-style books, um, in which um, there's a fairly casual treatment of a lot of really difficult issues, in an attempt to make those issues interesting and compelling, but also, um, but also approachable, right? So a lot of what I do throughout the book um, is I, I kind of gloss. Pretty big issues, right? That that could be taken up in a class, um, you know, a class completely dedicated to um, to those issues, right? So, for instance, um, I use the term "nature" extremely loosely throughout the book, um, without addressing, you know, all the various different um, definitions of nature that appear throughout the environmental philosophy literature or um, or, or the history of philosophy, um, and so too is that. The case with this distinction between humans and animals, it seems to me that um, we can just kind of build off of this general intuition that there is something about humans. that um, that distinguishes them from, you know, what might be more more broadly characterized as non-human animals. Um, I I don't recognize this expressly in, in the book, but I but I obviously would want to distinguish. I would want to say, like, sure, um, there are many non-human animals who appear to offer up something like reasons. Um, Are they ultimately reasons-responsive entities, um, you know, in the way that, like, you or I am? Are there not marginal cases of humans who have – who are not reasoners? Uh, I mean, uh, there there are definitely – these kinds of marginal cases. And in fact, um the line between sort of human and non-human animals uh, and reasoning and non-reasoning beings uh, is considerably blurrier than I make it out to be. But mm-hmm. I mean that was kind of a strategic decision uh, on my on my part um and maybe just a kludge to try to push in the direction of talking about reason all around and to to get at um, the, the reasoning nature of uh, essentially um, moral moral actors. So, I mean, if it turns out to be the case that, that dolphins and great apes also offer up reasons and are responsive to them and can endorse principles, then I think there's a sense in which we can both hold them responsible and maybe even expect them to respond or reason with us. Um, there's a second part of your question that I want to address also, um, regarding the necessity of pointing to the bruteness of some reasons or the animal nature of, uh, of, of humans. Um, there's, uh, for at least the second half of the book, uh, second half of the second half of the book, maybe the last quarter of the book, I spend a, a good bit of time talking about the way in which, um, humans often guide their actions simply by appeal to their drives or their their motivations maybe it is the whole second half of the book actually Um, and specifically in the latter half the latter half of the book (laughs) last (laughs) quarter of the book i spent some time trying to suggest that or at least i try to make this clear i'm not i'm not sure how successful i am that um that so much of our contemporary sort of um commercial apparatus that is to say our economy is built around this idea that um, we can, you know, provided that we have all, all appropriate rights assigned, uh, property rights, we can make decisions that more or less um, fulfill our wants and desires, right? And that's that's the purpose of our exchange economy. We have a bunch of dollars in our pocket, and we can spend them as we wish, right? Provided that you know we abide by the laws, um, but also that we have um, uh, property rights. I think this is devastating for the environment, right? This, this, um, this unreflective. Um, Freedom to simply act according to our wants and desires Um, And I think the environment would be much better off and I think we would be much better off as a civilization and society If we would not only act according to our wants and desires But reflect a bit on our acts acts and desires and ask whether or not um, they were appropriate whether they're respectful um, Whether they could be justified to a community of other like reasoners that is ultimately the objective of the book Um, so I think um I want to drag us away from this kind of animalistic um broodish uh orientation towards fulfilling our wants and desires.
1: Okay. Um so let me let me press a bit on this cuz this this is, does play an enormous role obviously given given yeah. the Kantian orientation yeah. of the book and so we can it's it's true. So let's just accept. You know, we do have this capacity for reasoning, where reason's responsive. Uh, we don't just act by brute reasons, whatever dolphins do or or don't do. Yeah. Um, but we we do it sometimes, and in very limited circumstances, or at least that's sort of what psychology is telling us. Right. And and so the here's the here's the problem. Uh you want to reorient environmentalism towards a view where we are motivated to act in environmentally friendly ways uh, based on you know reasoning rather than our wants and desires or or some other or because nature's good and we love it or something right. um but our capacity for reasoning is is kind of limited, and we don't do it, we actually don't do it very well. I mean, in in a sense, ideally, (laughs) you know, and Kant is very much an idealizer of of human nature, human rationality, I should say. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're talking, we're not talking about ideal reasoners here. We're talking about real people who respond pretty much to kind of what's in front of them, Great. and don't have a good sense of how to reason about things that are happening maybe farther than a week away i mean it can can be difficult and this is particularly the case that comes up over and over again in discussions of climate change yeah. where you you know even if we don't know exactly what the consequences are going to be or we don't know what technological fixes we can come up with Uh, There's still this big gap in terms of our ability to motivate ourselves by reasoning, you know, what's what's a plausible scenario in terms of the outcomes of of what we're doing Uh, and our ability to actually get that to motivate ourselves here and now to you know stop buying those gas-guzzling cars or vote for new taxes that will, you know, might in, be a few bucks per person but will improve, I don't know, some sort of transportation for everybody. There are various things that we just over and over have been found unable to do Right. Unable to act on, even though reason does tell you that these seem to be the right things to do, you know, plausibly. Right. So how, how do you um, overcome that sort of natural, the, the built-in limitations of human reason, given your Kantian perspective?
0: Okay, so, yeah, I should now maybe even clarify what that Kantian perspective is a a bit more. Um, So so I think I am I am um, better characterized as a a Kantian in in sort of name only or in heritage. Uh, I I sort of studying philosophy and writing my dissertation and so on. I wrote on Rawls and uh, Rawls and Habermas uh, and Korsgaard. And so, um, you know, these are these are contemporary Kantians uh, who are operating in the Kantian tradition. But but ultimately they're. they're considerably more uh aware of you know the sort of contemporary psychological debates and and um and discussions about uh about the passions and the drives um and and all of them to greater or lesser degree uh and not just not just these three but of course other other figures as well um you know scanlan and darwal and other sort of folks operating within this in this body of literature um, are aware of the limitations of reason, I think, in a way that, you know, Kant was a little bit more idealistic. Um, and I, I, I sort of I, I sort of agree with a lot of the, the more contemporary Kantians uh, like these these folks that um, that Uh, that we can't serve as our own guides, right. Or we as reasoning agents aren't reasonable enough to, to serve as our own guides, but we have to subject our reasons to, you know, public testing of some sort. And, um, I should say in agreeing broadly with this community of, uh, of authors in, in the philosophy literature, um, that I am agreeing very broadly with them. Right. I mean, I think the sort of the more, the more sort of difficult metaethical discussions in which they're engaged, um, heatedly, um, are very, very interesting. Um, and, uh, but I want to remain agnostic about, um, about sort of like, uh, the ultimate nature of justificatory reasons, or nature of internal or externalism, I don't. I don't want to sort of come down one way or the other on that because because I think um, as important as, the, as the, those debates are, um, they're not as important to the the main issue that I want to address, which is uh, what reasons have we for being environmentalists, or what reasons have we to look beyond our own sets of concerns um, to uh, to care for, or to promote, or protect the um the natural environment or the health and well-being of others. So, um uh I think that's my that's my primary objective there um is to be cognizant of uh of the fallible nature of us as reasonable mm-hmm. as reasoning beings um and to try to check this fallible nature with a kind of a public test. Now you mentioned also briefly the uh, so problems that we uh, I guess you mentioned two things maybe I can return to the motivation question in a second um, but you also mentioned this this kind of like the way in which um, reason even fails at the institutional level and I think I think actually when you are talking about climate change you were saying that it's a lot of our climate policy isn't made in a way that seems to be reasonable or rational um, I, I think that's actually less true <laughs> I mean there, uh, that that it is at the individual level I mean I think that at least um, at least my observation seems to be that institutions can function more reasonably, right, in a way than than individual actors. And though it may be the case that some institutions do respond to, you know, um, the interests of the institution that is more or less making a decision, it's very often the case that by the nature of um, the organization of a of an institution, whatever it may be, like, say, it's the UNF3C, which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change um, uh, you know, or all of the subsidiary bodies underneath the unf three C um, you know these, these are agencies that um, that seek to arrive at some kind of agreement uh, that will work for all affected parties and I think they do this in part by um, in part by making appeals to one another about sort of the right course of action. Um, What we also find when we have these major international negotiating bodies, uh, this is true at the UNF3C negotiating conferences, known as the council party meetings, the COPS, um, also true with fisheries management um, uh, negotiations, when we're talking about international fisheries. uh, What we find is we have these international bodies that often are also drawn to argue strictly from the standpoint of national self-interest, right? And and I think this is a problem. <laughs> I think they should not be arguing from, from the standpoint of national self-interest. They should be arguing from sort of the general general interest, right? Like what is ultimately going to help to uh, facilitate the health and well-being of a fishery or facilitate the health and well-being of the planet, let's say in the case of climate change. Um, and so so part of the organization of the book is to not just attend to um, the sort of the failures of reason on the part of the individual, but also to attend to the failures of reason on the part of institutions and institutional negotiations. Um, That doesn't play a front and center role, but I mentioned it, I think, throughout. um, And and that's in the back of my mind.
1: Okay. Um, (laughs) Well, you also, you you do a nice uh you called the the whole issue of climate change a, a a colossal tragedy of the commons, which I thought was was very apt. Um and uh your argument, I mean this sort of builds on what you what you've just said, you you uh you argue that there is hope in the sense that uh given by uh, figures such as Eleanor Ostrom, uh the yeah. political scientist or economist, whatever. Uh, <laughs> Very that, important that, person. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Who, uh, that we can arrive at, you know, despite all the, you know, the fallible nature of human reasoning, we can arrive at communal principles that yeah. uh, that do ensure, that do bring about a kind of self-regulation, as opposed to, you know, the original Tragedy of the Commons, um, Garrett Hardin, who was pretty pessimistic about, you know, it's like, well, we can't overcome this problem. And it just we're inevitably headed to ruin. Um, So maybe you can maybe you can explain a bit about the the uh, this the the problem of climate change from this aspect of. Uh, resolving the problem of the tragedy of the commons?
0: Sure. I, I can give that a shot. Um, yeah. A few things to say on that. Um, I think I, I, you know, the, the, the tragedy of the commons is for me, a very vexing problem. Um, and not just because it um, it's vexing, because we don't know how to resol- respond to it. There are, are there a bunch of sort of economic and game theoretic responses to the tragedy of the commons, but, but I think it's vexing in part because it's not ultimately clear from simply reading tra- explanations of the tragedy of the commons, what the tragedy is, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, it would appear that it's some kind of, um, some kind of devastation or destruction of value or something of value, like a fishery or a or a, you know, grazing plot, um, you know, to take the sort of the two common, um, to common explanations. Um, but, but, but I also think there's a sense in which, um, the tragedy of the commons is more aptly described as a case in which individual actors, um, acting in their own self-interest fundamentally undercut their own self-interest. And so, so are essentially self-sabotaging. Um, and, and that may be ultimately what the the tragedy is (laughs) that they're self-sabotaging. Um, I think, um, I think that, uh, folks like the Ostromites, uh, Eleanor uh, Ostrom, and uh, many of my colleagues here at Colorado and and at the University of Arizona. I worked with a, a student of Eleanor Ostrom when I was at Arizona, um, you know, put a lot of faith in, in Eleanor's uh, and their own observations that people do form um, uh, form non or informal, or um, informal, uh, um, mechanisms, um, uh, sanctioning mechanisms for a governing action that, um, that will then resolve tragedies of the commons, particularly at, um, local, uh, or smaller scale levels. Um, but I think that a lot of that, the sanctioning that Eleanor Ostrom describes is, um, not well accounted for. I'm mean, like, ultimately what, um, those kinds of sanctions, um, consist consistent or what kind, those kinds of rules consist in or what gives rise to them. And I think there's a moral story to be told about those, those, um, those rules. I, I, I think, and I guess I kind of have an intuition that, that at the end of the day, um, You know, it boils down to something like you're not respecting me, (laughs) a claim of, you know, of local actors to one another that, like, you know, I have an interest here. And then another person, you know, who is also a part of that that community of people who are sort of using the commons for their own benefit um, recognizes that their friend is not being respected or the friend also has a need that needs to be responded to. And in as much as that's the case, um, a norm emerges from that. Um, That's a fairly fairly simple explanation, but seems not unreasonable to me Um, anyway. So so on to the, the question of voting. Um, I use that example basically to address this this issue of of of, of something like causal impotence, um, or what's sometimes called causal impotence, um, because I think we 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 encounter with many environmental problems um, the um, the the conundrum that um, many of our actions are not actions that will in any respect benefit us. In fact, may be the kinds of things that um, are uh, difficult for us to do or hard to. Uh, hard to engage, like voting. It's very hard um, sometimes to go and invite vote, or even to um, to learn all the stuff that we need to learn um, to bring ourselves up to speed to the point at which we can vote intelligently. Um, and I think we we can probably all agree to that. Um, it seems to be difficult. Um, yeah. So, so, um, so I mean, there are a lot of responses to uh, the problem of causal impotence within the philosophy literature. Um, and, uh, some are very formal, very complicated calculations about, uh, averaging out, um, you know, impacts or what have you. Um, but, but my thought is, uh, you know, and it's not a, it's not, um, a, an unfamiliar thought. It's not, um, an idea that I can claim credit for. Um, b- but I think it's an important one. That, that one of the reasons we ought to be voting has nothing to do with whether or not our vote is going to make a difference right the reason why we ought to vote um, is m- because we are citizens and members of a state in which you know there's an expectation um, that um, or what it is or what it means to be a citizen is that we are the kinds of things the kinds of beings that, that vote so uh, uh, I think that's true also about um, being a citizen of the environment I think we're the kinds of beings who are responsive to our environment and are not the kinds of beings who um who sort of uh can just kind of do with nature as we wish um
1: okay um (laughs) well before i i am i wanted to to press the analogy a bit uh of voting but before before i get that i do want to ask um should, should we think of human population or overpopulation as as another kind of tragedy of the commons
0: I mean, that's tricky. <laughs> Human population, um, a lot of environmental issues like this um, are could be understood as a kind of tragedy of the commons, um, particularly if we place a, a pre-specified value or um, a baseline or target on um, on a state of the world. Right. And a lot of the book is oriented around trying to push us away from or to move us away from thinking about state of the world talk. If we think that there is some ideal population or optimal top population, um, that can be specified by, you know, carrying capacity, or that can be specified by something like, you know, overall happiness. Um, I think, uh, I think we might be inclined to think that, um, population, um, is a kind of tragedy of the commons that needs to be rectified or addressed. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, I mean, people have children (laughs) and families are an important part of living on this planet. And, um, and it's not clear that, um, that we're correct to characterize um the having of a child by two parents uh, or more parents uh as as um playing into i guess what you might think of as this this global or colossal tragedy the commons this overpopulation that doesn't seem to me the right um level at which to address um this so-called issue of population i don't That's not a very intelligent response I just gave you, but it is it is an attempt to take a stab at that that issue. I think I think a lot of environmental issues can be understood as something like a tragedy of the commons. But in a way, this is a this this characterization of environmental problems, it seems to me, uh, misses some important dimensions of those problems. And in the case of population, uh, what it misses is the the human sort of the, the human dimension of having having a child right
1: right but well i I guess what the the kind of question behind that Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. for for many people um uh, having a child is is not very clearly a a sort of rational process in which one (laughs) kind of decides i mean one typically one is not a kantian in these in these sorts of decisions (laughs) and yet and yet right. ones decisions about whether or not to have children have extremely important consequences uh are not causally impotent uh in uh-huh. terms of the larger picture and um it's 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 clearly a part of the problem um in terms of climate change it's not just burning fossil fuels it's also taking over uh land territory uh, and so forth and, and, you know, crowding out other species and, and, or, or having many people in places that the environment as such, uh, can't necessarily sustain very well, you know, water resources. And as you mentioned at the start of the interview, right? Yeah. You know, that it, a lot of it boils down to, to, to resource problems. So, so I, so I'm just kind of wondering how the Kantian, you know, rational perspective ought to play out for that decision, which, which very clearly does have, uh, consequences, uh, Mm. bad consequences for the environment. Um, how, how do you, how do you get the, if you can't get rationality there, uh, that seems to be leaving out a pretty big issue. It's not just rationality about, you know, should I buy this carton of organic eggs versus this other one? And it's not just, should I buy this gas guzzler or this, you know, leaf? Yep. Um, But, you know, should I have children or should I maybe uh, adopt, you know, somebody from a different part of the world? And that would... that would that would be a very rational thing to do.
0: Yeah, sure. No, that's a that's a great question, and that helps me understand ultimately why you were asking that question. I think um, I think sort of our, our natural inclination, particularly in the environmental community, is to think about um, uh, essentially the footprint of our actions and to ask these questions about whether it makes sense for me to have a child, given that there are so many children who are needy, um, there are so many orphan children, um, and um, so many. Um, you know uh the the population is exploding. I think um I think in a way that um this is where this is where uh, the kantian has a leg up on the the sort of the stricter consequentialist or or utilitarian even. Oh good. And that's that, I think <laughs> I think I mean in that in in that you know I mean both the Kantian and the utilitarian are going to be asking for something like a justification as to what counts as a reasonable course of action. And the utilitarian is going to answer something like, um, you know, you should try to minimize your, your damaging footprint however you possibly can. And this is going to require some very significant cutbacks on on action, including conceivably, you know, not having children. Um, as it happens, um, uh, it, it probably is the most – ecologically, environmentally um, important decision that any person will make in their life, whether to have a child or not. I mean, that's going to have the greatest impact of of anything else that they do. I'm um, just by virtue of bringing another person on board. You, you know, it it, it consumes a lot of resources. Um, but I also think that, as I was trying to say before, kind of ham-handedly, uh, we uh, there's there's a there's a very important human dimension to having, in a way, the autonomy or the freedom to. Uh, to build a family. This is not to say that building a family is for everybody. Maybe, maybe you can choose not to, to do that. But I think that the Kantian, or the more broadly the deontologist, is going to at least try to say, like, you know, within some some range of actions, we can set constraints on actions, right? It's maybe not reasonable for you to have 10 kids, right? Or, like, overdo it with kids. But, um, <laughs> but but, uh, within some range of actions, having a kid or not having a kid is part of the human experience. And it may be the case that we're going to have to live with a moderately degraded environment by virtue of, um, this feature of humanity, that this is just kind of who we are, that, that our, that our lives are sometimes enriched by having the freedom to bring other life on board or to maybe even to adopt children, right. Or whatever our decisions are. I, I think that, 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 that that compels me. The idea of putting constraints on action, um, but not but not forcing us into a, sort of a very narrow, small footprint, um, um, somewhat uh, difficult, maybe extensively difficult and demanding um, position, like uh, like we might get out of utilitarianism. I don't think I don't think the demandingness objection applies as as aggressively to the the deontologists as it does to the to the utilitarians. But maybe I maybe I i i could be corrected <laughs>
1: um i don't know i mean it's it's to me it's it's kind of a a central yeah uh, problem uh yeah. In, in the in the the Kantian perspective uh given the fact that well as you put it you know having children what have you is is yeah. uh you know part of the human experience but you know, obviously the same thing can be said, and, and autonomy, it's the same thing if you know, somebody who, who doesn't want to do the things that you think or that many people think are the right thing to do with regard to the environment might simply say something along the same lines, that, you know, this is part of – You know my human experience or the human experience or who who gets to say right what is what is part of the human experience or not
0: well this is where the publicity of reasons is going to have to play a role right i mean i think we're going to have to ask these questions it just doesn't seem to me reasonable that we could say you know of all parents that they're effectively environmental criminals right or they're (laughs) they're doing something you know you know, catastrophic for, for nature, for the globe. It doesn't seem that that's the kind of thing that I could get a bunch of people to assent to because it's such an important part of the, of the human experience that is, um, uh, it seems to me. Right. Whereas I, I I don't know. I mean, you know, again, this is this has got to be hashed out, I guess, in some way. It seems to me that the consequentialists are going to be in a much uh, trickier position with regard to this question, because, you know, there the mandate is to try to minimize the negative impacts wherever possible, uh, wherever possible. And that that will put put people in a position of basically being bad actors. Um You know, if they if they make decisions that don't involve driving a leaf, as you said, Mm -hmm. or or having a child, you know, or uh, or having a child, you know, Um, I don't know.
1: Okay, Um, (laughs) it's a tricky. I mean, I could a long time
0: about this. It's a very tricky question. Yeah. Um, But of course, but of course, I think I feel like there's some permission. the, you know, this is about permissions in a way, and um, we have some permission to to live lives in a way that that is enriching for for us um, uh, uh, and um, and uh, not feel as though we've completely uh, um, completely sort of run off the rails with regard to the, the environment.
1: <laughs> right, right. And yeah, and many hunters will. Right. Right. You know, I hear you hunting is, is like enriching human experience. In fact, it goes back to hunter gatherer and it's just part of being human.
0: Yeah. It's a great point. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, right. So this is always going to be a problem though. It's a problem within philosophy and outside of philosophy. We're always going to have people who, who make these kinds of appeals to things that we've always done. But I think, you know, the case of hunting is a, is a, is a challenging one. I don't, I think it's, it's much easier to say to a hunter, right um that um well let's say let's let's not take hunting writ large right But let's, let's just take something like you know say it's a big game hunter who wants to hunt an endangered species right? right i think there are a lot of reasons that can be offered up to a hunter or even the use of lead bullets right you say like you know You don't really need to use lead bullets to achieve this objective of yours, which is to get some kind of glory and uh, and some some um, excitement uh, by walking into the wilderness and and shooting creatures. There are a lot of other activities that can play that role. Um, And so it doesn't seem um, it seems to me reasonable to um, to uh, to allow or permit. Um, the use of lead bullets right with um, if, you know for a hunter or more broadly um, to allow hunters to go hunt an endangered wolf right that doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would pass a kind of public test right in quite the same way that allowing parenthood would would pass a test I mean I recognize of course that this is sticky right because you know historical contingencies being what they are, you, you might end up in a historical period where, you know, everybody's a kind of a bloodthirsty <laughs> meat eater and they, and then what they want to do is just walk into the wilderness and shoot lead bullets and, and shoot endangered species. Um, that certainly could be the case. I and mean, this is the, this is the downside of pushing for these kind of public reasonableness criteria. But, uh, but I do sort of believe that the sort of the arc of history is long, you know, and that, and that, you know, if given enough time we can kind of push ourselves in the direction of saying this is maybe not acceptable and this is a little bit more acceptable. I don't know. Maybe maybe yeah. I'm an idealist.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um well at the at the very end of the book, I do wanna um yeah. we're 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 close to running out of time here. Yeah. Um so you've mentioned a couple times this idea of agreement among concerned parties and the, the publicity and the idea that your reasons are not just just you not just that you can give some sort of a reason, but that the reasons have to be in some sense public and agreed upon, and all the concerned parties so it's it's also this Kantian universalizability basically some right. sort of idea in which we can overcome the tragedy the various tragedies of the commons by providing our reasons. To others around us, and coming to some sort of agreement among ourselves um, and and then our actions will be uh, acceptable to a wine range of people and this is, this is how we overcome uh, the tragedy through these communally negotiated uh, self regulations of some sort um, can you Can you say a bit about how you, you just mentioned you 're kind of an idealist? Um, obviously, today we're in a situation where there is n- the idea of agreement just seems like such an ideal about yeah. Uh, yeah. about climate change, uh, even about just restrictions on who can dump what into lake Erie and and you know things that we thought were were done deals are not yeah. done deals anymore. Um, how, how do you see your prescription for addressing environmental problems generally and climate change is, is the big one, but, um, not for everybody. Yeah. Uh, how do you see your program playing out in the current political context in, in, in reality, as opposed to what we ought to do?
0: Okay, so uh, it's a really, really tricky question, and um, this may not be a particularly satisfactory answer, but I'll I'll try to give it anyway. Um, I I think, first of all, it's important to understand that the that I understand the book as uh, as a call to become more philosophical, and that may be um, uh, that. I mean, that's true no matter what your ethical, you know, commitments are, right? Whether it's consequentialist or deontological or virtue ethicist or or pragmatist, pragmatist, or or what have you. I think that I'm really asking people to be more reflect- reflective about their actions and to subject their reasons and their positions to the scrutiny of essentially um, their their neighbors. But but, but really to, to think philosophically and deeply about the reasons that they have um, for taking actions. I think that what we can do as a community is trying to build channels for um, greater public discourse. And, and of course, you know, you and I are lucky in that we are situated in. Mm-hmm. Robust, well-funded or reasonably well-funded universities um, with um, outlets for discussion and we have access to um, students who are eager to learn and we can get into a classroom environment where there's kind of more or less unfettered discourse. Um, these are kind of idealized speech situations. I would like to see more of these um, publicly. I, I, I think our political discourse—I mean, you know—maybe it, it may be a little idealistic, as I said. Um, but but I think uh, our, our political environment is such that we are not engaging in the way that we engage at the university, um, and um, and I think this is a real shame. Um, and I and I think even um, what's so frustrating to. To liberal activists uh, um, uh, and maybe even uh, conservative activists, um, that the discussions are simply not happening. Right? What 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 we the environment in which we currently live, what we're experiencing now is essentially just a pulling and tugging of various interests and various kind of like tribal affiliations um, that is anti-discursive. If there's anything that we can do, and I don't really have a solution for this. I mean, again, like I mean a lot of my talks i say this but i'm just a philosopher Uh, i don't don't have any i don't have any practical solutions for this but i think build the channels however possible for greater increased more intelligent discourse Um, that that is uh, that's really what we need to do both at the individual level and at the institutional level Um, i don't i don't want to be i mean just as one last one just last tip here i don't i don't want to suggest that you know we should just go like right next door and knock on our neighbor's door and say like let's sit down and have a cup of tea and have a discussion about something you don't want to have a discussion about i don't mean that at all i mean that we need to take away obstructions um in the public policy making process and in our individual de- decision making process that prohibit us from, from from having these discussions and so as a final kind of ex- uh, example. i'll I'll bring up a case that i bring up in the book which is the um sort of attempts over the past 30 years or so and we're going to see them again to undermine essentially the core directives of the endangered species act the endangered species act um apart from ultimately what it aims to do which is uh not just protect species but also designate habitat um One of the directives of the Endangered Species Act, the way it's written, is um, to identify initially uh, endangered or threatened species um, in the world, right? So this is fundamentally a fact-finding act. First and foremost, there's a priority placed on figuring out what is endangered or threatened in the world, what critters are um, or plants. And um, there have been attempts to suggest that um, this is upside down and backwards, that instead what should happen first is we should make a determination about um, the, the benefits to uh, America of doing so, right? Of, d- we should determine whether or not it's going to be cost effective or um, the benefits are going to be great enough for us to try to pre- uh, preserve or uh, save a species this seems to me completely backwards right we should not base our science on whether or not it's going to be effect uh it's going to be uh, uh um to uh, uh possible co- from a from a cost perspective to to protect the species we we need to first figure out if a species is endangered or threatened it seems to me <laughs> then um then make a determination about where the critical habitat is, and then make a determination about um, about whether and how to most cost-effectively uh, p- preserve that habitat or conserve that habitat. Uh, that seems to me a, a case where um, dialogue has got to enter first, and then cost-benefit considerations should enter um, after. Uh, after the dialogue has happened, um, we see the opposite happening now in our current political state. So, I'd like to see those kinds of efforts um, uh, upended.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um. Well, we're we're out of time, so I'd like to close with a usual question about what's next for you. Are you uh, pursuing some of the themes in this book, or have you turned to different issues entirely?
0: No, I have not turned to different issues entirely. I am I am one of a f- few lone voices in the environmental ethics community, kind of pushing a more deontological position. It's a minor- minority position, um, and it's a difficult one to argue for reasons that you've, I think, nicely and <laughs> and charitably brought out in this in this discussion. So thank you for, for that. Um, but I'll probably stick and stick to my position and double down on the on the on the deontological stance. Um, I guess it's kind of fun to do that um, what I'm currently working on I was kind of motivated as much of a headache as it was to get this book published um, I've been motivated to write another book so I'm working on uh, essentially uh, a book that addresses more um, virtue oriented positions the, the sort of the second leading stance within the within the environmental ethics literature is as an environmental virtue ethics and so I mm-hmm. I think I might <laughs> just take my lumps and maybe see about going going that direction and see if I can address a few concerns of the of the virtue ethicists. So that's kind of that's kind of the project I'm I'm starting up now. I'm not sure if I'm <laughs> getting into hotter water than I want to be getting into, but that's what I'm doing.
1: Right. Well, um, I appreciate your taking the time to talk on new books in philosophy uh, today about about the wild and the wicked. Um, it's been a great conversation.
0: Thanks so much, Carrie, for your thoughtful questions.
1: Okay, and good luck with your your work to come. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Benjamin Hale, Associate Professor of Environmental Studies and Philosophy at the University of Colorado at Boulder. We've been talking about his new book, The Wild and the Wicked on Nature and Human Nature, which is just out from the MIT Press. This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.